It's Friday, February 2nd, 2024. I'm Albert Moeller, and this is The Briefing, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. We're going to turn to questions from listeners in just a moment, but first I want to talk about a rather heartwarming story that appeared on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Sometimes we have to talk about deeply troubling things, uh, deeply controversial things. This one, just in the oddest way, is sweet. And uh, I think without intending, just points to the love between parents and children and some of the complexities that can come out of that. The headline on the article, and as I said, it appeared on the front page of the print edition of the Wall Street Journal on Monday. The headline is this, Junior Heads to College, but Empty Nesters Need the Tutors. The subhead on the article, After Years of Shepherding Children, Parents Seek Help Learning to Live on Their Own. Tara Weiss is the reporter on the story, and it really does begin with something that a lot of parents can identify with very quickly. It's a big transition when the first child goes off to college, but when the last child goes off to college, boom, it's like a total change of life. The article begins mentioning one father who, quote, recalled bittersweet feelings when his oldest child left for college, but he didn't expect the profound sadness when his middle child said goodbye last year. The 56-year-old dad said, quote, they all sting, but this one hurt. The reporter then tells us, quote, helicopter parents get accustomed to tracking their children's every move via smartphone, keeping activities tightly scheduled, scrutinizing homework and grades, exchanging miles of texts. It goes on, quote, for a certain cohort of hands-on parents, getting their teens into college marks the finish line. Then comes the coup de grace. Bye, mom. Bye, dad. See you at Thanksgiving. The article then tells us, quote, the kids are fine as parents who need help. The exit of high school seniors leaves many feeling like, quote, they've been fired from a job they've had for 18 years. That, according to an individual identified as Jason Ramsden, he has, quote, made a name for himself on TikTok as the empty nest coach, end quote. Well, of course he has, because everyone needs a coach these days to get through just about anything. And uh, a child leaving to go to college, leaving an empty nest, evidently there is business to be made, trying to help parents to cope with all of this. We are told that one particular coach charges $250 an hour for private counseling sessions. I just have to wonder about that economy, but let me come back to the reason we're talking about this article today. It is because there is a really heartwarming affirmation of the love between parents and children in this article. That's something we shouldn't miss. In our society, there's just so much cynicism But this article really isn't cynical. The article only works because in kind of a lighthearted manner, it points to the very real experience of grief. I don't think that's the wrong word. Grief on the part of parents when their children go off to college. And it's not just because they have been fired from a job they held for 18 years. It's because they so love their children that, quite frankly, their lives have been largely defined as parents during those years that they have been expecting children and waiting for children, then having children, and raising those children, only at some point to see their children go off to a campus. And, uh, you know, there is something in what the report states here. The kids are fine. It's the parents who need help. But, you know, I think it's also true, and I say this as a college president, I think it's demonstrably true that these young people miss their parents, too. And that's one of the reasons why a good college, a good Christian college, uh, puts uh, those young people especially freshmen, those first-year students coming in, into a very, very healthy context in which they're not only with each other, uh, but they're also surrounded by people who care for them and know what's going on in the great transition in their lives. There is something to saying the kids are fine. It is because those young people really understand kind of intuitively the rightness of this next stage of life, 
And uh, for them, it's a, it's a grand adventure. But I can also tell you that homesickness is a real thing. And it's only really a real thing because home is so important. And so I can just tell you as a Christian theologian, as a, as a Christian minister, as a Christian leader, as a Christian college president, I love the fact that parents miss their kids and that young people miss their parents. It's not equal. Again, the article's right about that. It's not equal. It's the parents with the empty house and uh, the kids with a uh, dorm room. It's, it's, it's a different picture. But I just want to come back to the fact that this is not an accident. This isn't just a biological process. Uh, you know, raccoons also have their young go out into the world, but you don't talk about coaching adult raccoons with an empty nest. Same thing for birds. And, uh, you know, I, uh, every once in a while, see one of those videos of, say, uh, a little lion, a little cub, and, uh, you know, with parents, and you see the dad roll the little cub along like a ball, just having fun, and you, you see the mom nourishing. But, uh, you know, so far as I know, there are no lions charging $250 an hour for empty nest counseling uh, for those parents. But for humans, it's different. It's because we're made in the image of God, and it is because we not only love our offspring, we, uh, we know we love them, and they know we love them. And in a fallen world, there are so many fractured things that can take place. But isn't it a great testimony to the glory of God's creative purpose and His love for us that on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, there is this article saying that these parents are really uh, so discombobulated by especially uh, an empty house with all their offspring now off to college and beyond. There's something just really, really sweet about this. There's something sweet about a Christian dad who says, boy, they all hurt, but this one really hurts. I hope you'll also allow me to be a bit didactic here, that is to say, to, to, to take on the role of a teacher. I think I can do that as both a, a parent and grandparent on the one hand, and uh, as I said, a college and seminary president on the other hand, because I get to see this. And I just want to say to parents, your job is not done. You've not been fired after 18 years. You are still very necessary, and not just for writing checks uh, for a junior to be able to go to college. Uh, the role of parents in the lives of young adults and older teenagers, it's far more important than most parents recognize. And parenting doesn't end. It changes. It changes profoundly, but it doesn't end. I want to tell you something really sweet. The students at our college, it is really clear they love their parents. It's also really clear they care what their parents think. They want to know what their parents think. And the big decisions of life, and frankly, for many things that aren't big at all, uh, they really crave input from their parents. That's a very sweet thing. It just brings me great satisfaction to see not just parents in the stands of a Little League game watching uh, Little Age kids play, but parents when they're with their sons and daughters uh, when they visit the college. And I just get to see uh, how parents, I hope, are exulting in what God's doing in the lives of their young people. I know they are, and, and you really see that. And so I just want to say the Wall Street Journal is on to something big here. Evidently, even uh, business opportunities have arisen here. But I just found this heartwarming in a world in which there is so much trouble in the headlines. Uh, it's fascinating to me, and, and I thought just kind of affirming to Christians to look at this and say, you know, the glory of God shows up in some unexpected places, and uh, that includes below the fold of the print edition of Monday's Wall Street Journal and an article about how much parents miss their kids when they go to college. Now I want to turn to questions, and uh, frankly, I received an avalanche of questions from listeners about one issue that has been unexpectedly kind of a hot debate. 
among uh, conservative evangelical Christians in recent days, and this has to do with whether or not a Christian should attend a same-sex wedding ceremony or same-sex wedding. And on this issue, frankly, uh, I've been writing about this and talking about this very question for, uh, well, nearly 20 years in one way or another. But focusing on the question becomes all the more urgent once you had the formalization of same-sex ceremonies and then uh, covenant services, as they were called, and then same-sex marriage in some places, and then after the Obergefell decision in 2015, uh, same-sex marriages, as they are called, being declared legal, and uh, same-sex weddings becoming more routinized. And uh, so, you know, one of the first reasons I had to bring this up was because of a student who asked me a question urgently because of a question from his own family. Now, again, that was 20 years ago when I was asked that question. And the first thought that came to my mind is this isn't hard. This isn't really hard at all. And it's not hard because of what a wedding is. A wedding is a celebration. A wedding is a covenant ceremony of one sort or another. It may be confused, but it's a covenant ceremony. It's being declared as the formal public declaration of a thing. And uh, that thing is a marriage and, uh, or a union. And, and that's where Christians understand that it's not just that we think that same-sex marriages are wrong, it's that we don't think same-sex marriages are marriages. We actually don't think it is. It doesn't fit the biblical criterion. It doesn't fit creation order. And uh, I, I had to raise it a second time in response to Houston Pastor Joel Osteen. And uh, that wasn't the first time I've had to deal with Joel Osteen, who, by the way, used to make a lot more headlines in the Christian world back when he he was more active in Christian circles. He's, he's kind of retreated, or uh, uh, certainly uh, in more of an eclipse in terms of Christian conversation than was the case, say, back in 2011. In 2011, he made a couple of public statements, and one of them had to do with uh, whether he would attend a same-sex wedding ceremony. And, uh, well, I think he failed in the answer. And so because that was a part of public conversation, I had reporters call me and ask me what my position was on it. Uh, I'd already written on it, but I said, you know, I'm going to go further. And so I published two articles in 2011 on this question. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to make as a point is, again, that a wedding is not like a meal. A wedding is not like a conversation. A wedding is a ceremony. And, you know, historically, those who have participated in the ceremony, and by that I mean even just those who are in the congregation, they're described as witnesses and celebrants to the wedding. That is to say, they're there to celebrate. And affirmation of the union is historically, and I think biblically, crucial to what a wedding is all about. You know, it's one of the reasons why the most foundational language in terms of marriage in Western civilization, the most foundational language in the English-speaking world, is the language of the Book of Common Prayer. And even those who by no means use the Book of Common Prayer for worship, uh, most Protestants use some version of the language of the Book of Common Prayer in the solemnization and the celebration of marriage. And, and that's why almost everyone recognizes the language. If there be anyone here who knows any reason why these two should not be lawfully wed, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Well, you know, that wasn't unexpected language. That's not incidental language. And that comes up again and again in weddings. If you're here, you're here because you think this is right. If you're here, you believe this is a marriage. And when it comes to Christians uh, looking at a same-sex ceremony, whatever they're going to call it, we don't believe that it's right. We can't celebrate it. And we actually don't believe it's marriage. So we can't bear false witness about marriage. Now, in January of 2011, I published an article 
in which I said, you know, this was Joel Osteen's moment. Your own moment will come soon enough. And my warning to Christians back then in 2011 was you better think this through because it's not going to be particularly healthy to think this through when you have an invitation in your hand. You need to think this issue through long before you get an invitation. And you need to think this through in biblical terms, which is not just about whether you should go or not, but why. And and then, you know, what else is important to this context? Because if you're invited to a wedding, and here's something we just need to acknowledge. If you're invited to a wedding, there must be some relationship with at least one of the parties in this ceremony. And so I think it's emphatically true that Christians do not want to have no relationship. Or to put it another way, it is not true that Christians should seek to avoid any relationship with someone who's identified as LGBTQ or someone who is in some kind of same-sex relationship. Uh, But there's a category distinction between, you know, fostering a relationship and uh, even, say, sharing a meal and table fellowship. There is a categorical distinction between that and being a celebrant in a ceremony. That, that, that's a, a categorical distinction, and I, I think that's important, and I'm going to make that argument. I've, I've made it consistently now for well over a decade, and I, I think that's one that's deeply rooted in the Christian tradition, I think, and in the nature of a wedding. And, uh, you know, there are witnesses in, uh, in every state I know of. There are witnesses that have to sign that the wedding uh, is legitimate and lawful. And uh, those who are attending are the larger circle of those who are in agreement with that. And uh, so I think that that emphatically means that that's the one place that Christians, I think, should not be. And I think we, we need to decide that up front. And, uh, you know, a further complexity comes with uh, the question, well, are there circumstances that may say you would go to this but not go to that? Is this a relationship that, you know, is particularly important? And I would simply say, I think this is one of those issues in which we need to recognize this is not context-dependent. That is to say, uh, the moral distinction is not between that same-sex ceremony and this same-sex ceremony. The categorical distinction is between marriage and uh, ceremonies that celebrate what is not marriage and can't be from a Christian biblical perspective. I appreciate the many listeners who wrote in on this question, and this may well be a, a developing issue among Uh, our evangelical circles, and I'll be tracking that with you. I also want to say I will put a link at the website for today's program in for a rather lengthy answer I gave to this question back in March of 2022. So I'll, I'll simply reference that also for some further consideration. Next, I want to turn to a question from Samuel, who is uh, writing from Canada. He says he's 18. And uh, by the way, thanks for listening to the briefing. He says, I live in Canada, and under the Trudeau government, we have seen bills passed such as Bill C-11, which gives the government control over media in regards to what's promoted. He goes on to say, although it hasn't been put into effect yet, along with this, we have media outlets such as the CBC, that's Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, receiving billions of dollars from the government in uh, support, uh, which has made it very partisan. And he asked this question, how on earth am I supposed to trust reporting on my government with such issues? How do you determine what is true when journalism is now little more than state-sponsored activism? End quote. Well, Samuel, I am thankful for this question. I'm thankful you are very much alert to what's going on in the media, most importantly there, uh, which you referenced directly in Canada. Uh, but frankly, this is a problem for all Christians everywhere. The media consumption, huge question. Uh, which media sources we trust, who can we trust, who should we trust? Huge questions. How do we 
uh, trust and verify? You know, h- how do we critically and uh, faithfully analyze the news in terms of the source, the delivery, the context? Uh, there's just a whole lot going on here. But, you know, one of the interesting things your question triggers, Samuel, is the fact that we need to recognize that people want to control the news. And uh, that's certainly true of governments. Governments want to control the news. That's that's just a basic fact. And, of course, it's perhaps no better illustrated in fiction than in uh, George Orwell's 1984, uh, you know, where there's an entire government ministry of the control of this kind of information. And I think it's just fair for us to understand that most governments will seek to do that. And even, for example, I'll say in the United States, which has a pretty radical freedom of the press, uh, that doesn't mean everyone has access to the printing press or uh, to uh, major media platforms. And it doesn't mean the government doesn't have its own story. It's trying to get out for its own purposes. And, uh, you know, the biggest problem here in the United States uh, is the fact that a certain kind of corporate class tends to own the big media. And it comes with a, a worldview and a commitment and, of course, a professional journalism class that is in many ways just openly hostile to biblical Christianity and to conservative Christians. And so that's very much a reality. And, uh, you know, there are also these huge legacy media entities that have so much power and influence. You know, just say the name, New York Times or, uh, you know, CNN. Now, one's much older than the other, but you get the point. Uh, th- these are legacy news now. And, uh, you know, some people would refer to something like CBS as the Tiffany News Network. And both of those references are dated. But the point is, you know, not everyone can start a television network. Not everyone can own one. That's a very privileged position. And it tends to be a very rarefied group with a pretty unified worldview. And let's just say biblical Christianity is not famously a part of that worldview. But, you know, uh, you mentioned the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Here we also have the same problem with NPR, National Public Radio, funded by the government and, quite frankly, just extremely liberal. Now, I'm not saying that it is always lacking in credibility. It's, it's, it's not. It does a lot of good reporting. Uh, it's a very professional organization, but it's under the control of the media class. There's just no question about it. So uh, I do resent the fact that my taxpayer money is channeled in that direction, And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that frustrates me, by the way, in reporting from NPR is that when they report on conservative Christians, they generally go to people critical of conservative Christians and ask them what conservative Christians think rather than, uh, say, calling conservative Christians and asking them what they think. Now, they've called me from time to time. I respect that. I appreciate that. They've called others. But, uh, you know, on the liberal side, I don't think they call conservatives in order to say, what do liberals believe about this And when you look at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and the context there in Canada, Samuel, you are talking about a context that is actually in many ways more European in its shape, both in terms of the constitutional arrangements and the cultural history. And uh, so uh, I think the opportunity there for government control is a a little more direct and perhaps insidious uh, than uh, the kinds of control problems we have in the United States to your south. Samuel, I want to give you some good news, and that is the fact that it's almost impossible these days for anyone to hold a news monopoly, and that's true for the CBC. Thankfully, it's true for National Public Radio or for PBS, public broadcasting. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that you need to think about is uh, how you can get alternative news and, uh, you know, 
there are plenty of websites out there that would offer an angle on the news, but some of them, frankly, are not well sourced. Some of them are not well edited. Uh, some of them are not very accountable. So discernment's really called for here, and I think that's one of the reasons why people in a local church, and I, I would say your church there in Canada, your circle of Christian friends, I think you should think about this, talk about this together, and kind of pool your resources and your critical abilities to say, you know, we actually think there's more to the story. We think this is distorted. We think this represents government control. We think this is uh, evidence of uh, of attempted censorship. Um, and uh, I think one of the ways you kind of check that, honestly, Samuel, is by—and you can't do this just individually. I try to actually help people in the briefing by by offering some of this in terms of exposure across a wide range of media outlets— so you can say, well, you know, this is kind of checked by that. Uh, this source from the left raises a good question. It's a very distorted way of dealing with it, but they do raise a good question. And uh, over here is credible information where we can check that distortion. So it's hard work. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything else that uh, would depreciate just how much hard work it is, Samuel. But I want to say one other thing, and that is, you are absolutely right not to trust the government to control the media. That's a basic fundamental point. And uh, so I appreciate the fact that you're on that. Samuel, again, thanks for your question. And uh, to Jared, I want to say thanks for your question. It uh, challenges me on my use of the term natural death. And uh, I'm asked, quote, while I certainly understand what you mean, I question if that's an appropriate term from a Christian worldview where death is an unwelcome intruder. Death isn't really natural. It's only necessary due to humanity's disobedience to Adam. It didn't even exist in the created order to that point. That would seem to make it quite unnatural. What are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are, Jared, uh, you're uh, you're putting a lot of thought into this, which I appreciate, and uh, your direction back to creation order is entirely right, and uh, even more emphatically, uh, we're directed to Scripture. And uh, I just want to say that the parallel to natural death is the natural man, and uh, that's not my term. That's the Apostle Paul's term in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we also have references in Scripture to being this or that by nature. We are by nature children of wrath. And, uh, and that's, that's not the way it was in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but that's the way it is in Genesis 3. That is now the natural state. And that's why we need supernatural redemption. And that's why we need a new nature and must be born again. And that's why, actually, we need a new heaven and a new earth. And so it's natural now that it's the state of all persons that is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Sin is now natural, and death is now natural. With sin came death. And sin is now a part of the natural order. Now, as we look at the natural death issue, of course, that's to be contrasted with those who try to bring about death in an unnatural way. The biblical worldview, I believe, is very clear about the gift of life and God's sovereignty uh, from the moment of fertilization all the way until natural death. But of course, that's just a subset of God's sovereign purposes for us from before the foundation of the earth and until uh, the fullness of the kingdom and then for eternity. But uh, I think it's just really important for us to recognize that in the flow of biblical history, and uh, I think biblical theology here is very clear, that what would have been unnatural in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 becomes very natural in Genesis 3 and following, such that we are now by nature sinners. And uh, thus death, which entered because of our sin, it, uh, it is also now a natural death. And that's to be respected, by the way. This is a hard part of biblical theology. We are to respect the verdict of death and the reality that we are mortal, and uh, that a part of our mortality means that uh, we should expect a natural death. 
You know, I also appreciate questions that I think I can answer pretty quickly. Uh, you can tell I'm tempted not to be very quick about certain answers. I think the issues are so big and weighty. And sometimes, you know, we have to say a certain amount just to be certain that we're at least sufficiently clear. And uh, that's a challenge. But uh, Kobe writes in with a good question. And I appreciate you listening, Kobe. This is the question. Do you ever fear American evangelicals becoming more concerned about social matters and policies over and against personal holiness? And he says, I'd love to hear any thoughts you may have to this. Well, Kobe, my first thought is, I think you're exactly right. I think that there is the temptation for many people, and certainly for some individual believers, to be more concerned about social matters and controversies and policies and less concerned about personal holiness. And I I think it's really good that you asked this question, and I'm going to try to answer it, as the Puritans would say, answer it clean and, uh, and concisely. And that means, yes, you are emphatically right. And uh, I think we could put it this way. What would it mean to gain the whole world in terms of policies and to lose our own soul in terms of a lack of concern for personal holiness? Good word, good warning. Thanks for sending in your question. We'll try to turn to even more questions next week in uh, Friday's edition. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the uh, thoughtful listeners to this program and uh, the thoughtful questions that you send in. Some of them tend to, I I must say, uh, require a more personal approach than I feel that I can take in a public program. And I think you probably understand that. But uh, nonetheless, I appreciate the fact that you trust me with those questions and uh, send them in. Well, I also want to affirm again the importance of Christian higher education and the importance of a Christian college for Christian young people, and that's the reason why I'm very proud to be the president of Boyce College, and I really believe in what we're doing here, and we're trying to raise up an army of Christian young people who are going to be able to change the world and serve the church to the glory of God. So I'd really like to invite Christian parents and Christian young people considering college uh, to come to Boyce College Preview Day, which is March 21 and 22. So it's coming up here pretty quickly, and uh, you'll be able to meet with the faculty. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you personally and uh, having uh, young people come and, m- just for one thing, just get to know the college and come to understand what Christian young people should look for at a Christian college. And uh, they'll also get to meet not only the faculty, but students have a pretty good idea of what's really going on here. We'll talk about the issues that are important and I think uh, really should... Uh, be very much on the minds of Christian young people and parents in answering this uh, very, very important question. Uh, By the way, I also have some good news. Uh, For listeners of The Briefing, you can register for free. Simply go to boycecollege.com slash preview and then put in the code The Briefing. I think you can remember that. And so I'll look forward to seeing you at the Boyce College Preview event March 21 and 22nd. Remember boycecollege.com slash preview, code the briefing, and thanks for listening to the briefing. For more information, go to my website at albertmuller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmuller. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. I'll meet you again on Monday for the briefing.